Isn't it beautiful outside? That sun just bouncing off the snow just looks gorgeous. We're in Mark chapter 12, so I encourage everyone to join me here in, in Mark 12. Uh, there were three religious denominations, I guess we could say, within Judaism in the time of Christ. There were the Pharisees, and there were the Herodians, those that just said, well, you might as well get along with the government, just submit to it. And the third group were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the political group. Uh, they, most priests were a part of the Sadducees. They were the aristocrats. They were the get-your-nose-up-in-the-air people, you know. They were the best of the best. So we're going to see an incident that happened here today that had to do with the Sadducees. And we have to understand a little bit about what the Sadducees believe to understand the perspective they're coming from. Uh, so I'm going to read here in just a minute in uh, verse 18. We're, we're, looking, we're calling this series we're looking at the resistance because in Mark chapter 12 there are four incidents that were resistance. In other words, Jesus is trying to do something and there's resistance. If you've ever tried to do something, you know what resistance is. You don't have the right tool, or you don't have the right equipment, or you don't have enough time. That's resistance. So <clears throat> we're looking at these resistance stories. Um, last week, we looked at uh, the, first, the first one, which was the parable of the tenants. The Pharisees had asked the question, who gave you the authority to come into the temple and throw these tables upside down? Who, who told you you could do that? Where did you get your authority? And Jesus responded by telling the parable of the tenants. And then immediately after that, which we're not going to study, we don't have the time to get into it, but immediately after that, some people come, the religious people come, and they said, you don't, you don't pay the imperial tax, you're supposed to pay the tax. And Jesus said, do you have a coin? Bring me a coin. And they brought him a coin. And he says, whose image is on this coin? And it was the image of Caesar. We talked about that several months ago, maybe six months ago, so I'm not going to get into that again. And uh, Jesus just turned the tables on them. Resistance. Today we're going to look at the third element of resistance, which is here in uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 18. So let's, let's read through that, the first part of that story. We'll break it down again like we did last, last week. Uh, start 18 and 19. Here's the first part. Then the Sadducees, <clears throat> who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's the first one. It's, if you want to fill in the blank, it's, it's the loaded question. They came to him with a question, and it's loaded. You see, they knew the Old Testament. But here's, a, here's the unique thing about the Sadducees. They only focused on the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books. All focused on the law, the Mosaic law. They only focused on that. 
See, they, they, they believed in the historical books. They believed in the writings. They believed in the prophets. That's the Old Testament. But they only focused on the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, the law. That's all they focused on. And as they studied Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and read it over and over and over again, as they studied it, they understood that there's almost nothing in there about a resurrection. There's almost nothing in there about there being a heaven. Nothing. It's so it's, they, they focused on what the law said, just behave yourself. Just follow these rules, discipline yourself, and you'll be okay. But they didn't have any hope of a resurrection. And they knew Jesus talked about the resurrection. So they came to him with this, with this question that they're about to ask. But before we get into that, I think we need to see what did the law really say, and why did it say that? And so I'm, th- this is in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. God says, If brothers are living together, meaning in the same household, and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. That's what the law said. Why would God make such a rule? It seems so foreign to us. There's really two things God was trying to accomplish here. Number one, he's trying to watch out for the widow. Because a widow's inheritance comes from the father, or comes from her husband. If she loses her husband, and she doesn't have a child, who's going to watch out for her? Who's going to take care of her in her old age? So God's trying to watch out for the widow. So he says, if the husband dies, his brother then, talking about living in the household, his brother then should marry her, not just have sex with her, but marry her. He become, they, they become a new partnership. And then if he dies and they don't have any kids, there's no son involved to take care of the widow, then the next one should marry. That's what, that's what the law is saying. And the second reason for this law is to continue the family name. This is important to God in the Old Testament that the family name be honored. It gets perpetuated. So when the son is, when that son finally comes, he's named after the first husband. Keep that family name going. So the Sadducees only focused on a small part of the Bible. The thing I love about the Word is it's so rich, written by all these different authors over this long period of time, and yet it says the same thing. There's a, there's a, a thread of truth woven all through the Bible, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And the Bible interprets the Bible. So the only way for you and I to really have a, a balanced perspective of what God is saying is to read the whole thing and let the Bible interpret the Bible. Anytime you focus on one topic or 
one part of the Bible and omit the others, you miss it. You're missing something. And this is what they did. They only focused on part of it. We have people like that today. When I was a new Christian, the, the teaching was read the red because the King James Version had red letter print for what Jesus said. So you're supposed to read the red. Just look at what Jesus said. Forget everything else. Well, the way to understand what Jesus said is to read everything else. It's a balanced perspective we have to have. It's, you can't just focus on one little part and omit the other. So the Sadducees did that, and they got out of balance. And so they came up with a false conclusion. Because there's nothing in the Pentateuch about the resurrection. And so they thought, what a stupid idea to actually think that we're going to die and they get married again. So they, they come to him. This is the, by the way, I, yeah, I did give you the loaded question. Here's the second part. It's in verses 20 and 21. And here's what the Sadducee says to him in his trick question. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were all married to her? Can you see the smirk on the guy's face? He thinks this resur resurrection idea is foolish. There's no way. He's only talking about the first five books, and there's nothing in there about a resurrection, but there is in, in there something about the brother has to marry the widow. So he comes up with this absolutely absurd exaggeration of the story. This wasn't a case that really happened. He just thinks this story up, exaggeration on the truth. And you and I could do that if we wanted to. We could come up with exceptions. This, this obviously can't be the truth. And then we exaggerate it out and take it out and apply it to different situations. So they were coming up with this crazy idea, which we're going to call the law in practice. We understand what the law says. We understand what the word says. But what? how do we practice it? This is something attorneys are, this is where they make their money. How does, it, can there be a loophole in this? Can we find a way to work around what everybody's thinking? The law in practice. So he comes up with this theoretical, non-truth story that's just an exaggeration to make Jesus look like a fool believe in, in a resurrection, to make all these people that believe in a resurrection. And the Pharisees did. They read the rest of the Bible. Now, if these Sadducees had read the rest of the Bible, I found this just this morning. I was browsing through this while we were in prayer time, and I found this scripture. This is from Isaiah. This isn't in the Pentateuch, but it's in the Bible. 
Isaiah the prophet says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. What's that talking about? It's talking about a resurrection. A resurrection. This, the Old Testament is full of teaching on a resurrection, but you don't get it if you focus on one little corner. You got to take the whole word and let it, let it balance itself out here. And then we know what God's really saying. So here's a stupid question they pose to Jesus. How's Jesus going to respond to this? Uh, but let me tell you what Paul says about this kind of question. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, he says this to Timothy, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they only produce quarrels. That's right. Everybody knows that, right? So he'd come up with a foolish and stupid argument, question here for Jesus. How's Jesus going to deal with that? Which takes us to the third point. Uh, picking this up here in verse 24. Jesus replied, are you, are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels of heaven. He didn't say they will be angels in heaven. Just because someone you love dies and goes to heaven doesn't mean they become an angel. Angels are special created beings that God has created to minister to those who serve Him. That's what angels are. But when we get to heaven, we're going to be neutral. Males and females. Is that bad news? The bad news is, if you hadn't thought about it, in this room, those of us that are believers, when the resurrection takes place and we get resurrected, some of our body parts aren't going to make it. <laughs> you see, the resurrection is a transformation. It's not reanimation. It's not you fall asleep and then when you get to heaven you wake up and you got the same problems and the same body and the same appetites. It's not going to be the same when we get to heaven. So the, 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 the word here in point number three is the lesson on heaven that Jesus is giving. He says you're making a mistake. You err when you take that, that aspect of God's law and you take it out and apply it to something like that. You err because you don't understand. The reason we reproduce on this earth, generation after generation, is because of the law of sin and death. We're all going to die. The planet would be void of humans if we didn't leave another generation behind us we see this? But when we get to heaven, nobody's going to die. We won't need to reproduce ourselves in heaven. So something's got to change besides my body. I can't imagine me in this body in heaven where God says, no, 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 and I have, I, my body says, yes, yes, yes. 
I'm not going to have that kind of friction in heaven. Something's going to change. We're going to all be the same. So the Sadducees got in trouble because they didn't know what the Word says. There are a couple of major religious groups in our world today who get this wrong because they don't know what the Word says. One of them are called Muslims. They don't know what the Word says about sexuality. So they read just... They, did you know that Muslims also believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament? They believe God's given a new revelation in the Koran. So they read the Koran exclusively. They ignore the other parts, although they say they believe it, but they focus just on the Koran. And the Koran says, if a man will live a, a uh, I don't want to say God-like, an Allah-like life down here, and you do things God's way, that when you die, the Koran says this, when you get to heaven, there'll be 72 naked virgins up there for you. This is, this is why men that are not godly at all will spend all their, their time, not all their time, but they'll spend time in the mosque bowing down, praying to something they really don't believe, but they have this hope that when I die, I'm going to get to heaven and have 72 naked virgins. Woo! This is why people are willing to blow themselves up so that they can... Hurry up and get to the 72 naked virgins. I heard about these two Muslim terrorists that blew themselves up, found themselves standing at the pearly gates, and they looked through the gates on the other side, and there was George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and 70 other ugly men. And these terrorists looked through there, and they said, What? What is this? There's supposed to be beautiful naked virgins over there. And we're looking over there and we see you guys. What is this? And George Washington says, I'm sorry, that was a typo. That should have said 72 Virginians. And we're not happy with what you've done with our country. <laughs> Speaking of 72, did you know that that according to a recent survey, 72% of Americans said they believe in heaven. A lot of those don't believe in God, but they believe in heaven. They want to get there. They just don't understand how they're going to get there. And therefore, probably not going to get there. So Muslims are the first group that misunderstand because they don't know the scriptures. There's a second group that you'll know. We call them the Mormons. They misunderstand this as well. They think that there's a, a celestial kingdom and that if you get married in the Mormon church, not just a marriage, not a civil ceremony, but in the Mormon church, if you get married in the Mormon church, you become sealed with that person you married. And then when you get to the celestial kingdom, you'll be married to that person you're sealed with. And so where the Mormons get off on this polygamy thing is they actually think they can have more than one marriage down here, and that way they'll have more than one marriage up there. That way they'll be satisfied all the time that up in heaven they can have spiritual children. And those spiritual children then appear down here as Mormons. 
new generation of Mormons. See, they get this wrong. They think heaven is all about sex. I'm sorry. That's the farthest thing from God's mind. Sexuality has to do with our humanness down here on this earth. When we get to heaven, the only thing we're going to lust after is getting closer to Jesus. Oh, we just want to press in just a little bit closer. I just want to understand a little bit more. Jesus, answer me these questions about what I didn't understand down here. We're going to want to get to Him. We're going to want to communicate with Him. That's the only thing we're going to be lusting after up there. So, Jesus said, you err because you misunderstand the Scriptures. And you don't understand the power of God. That's the second thing. They didn't understand the power of God. They tried to apply human principles living down here on this earth with heavenly principles up there. And they're just two different things. To get to heaven, you've got to die. Your, your body's going to lie in a grave someplace. As Benjamin Franklin says, food for the worms. Well, we think we can avoid that by sealing the casket real good. I don't think that's, that's going to make any difference. Once I'm gone, my soul's out of my body. Which takes us to the fourth part of the story I want us to see. It's uh, last, last two verses, 26 and 27. Jesus says, Now, about the dead rising... He's talking to the Sadducee, remember, who doesn't believe in that, who just thought that was foolishness. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? You know where the book of Moses is? It's in the Pentateuch. This book they knew. Jesus speaks their language. In the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So that last blank there is the God of the living. I'm not the God of the dead. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You got to be alive to have him be your God. You can't be dead and have him be your God. He wants to be your God, but he's the God of the living. So you got to get resurrected. In the New Testament, we call that being born again. Yes, yes there is a resurrection after we die. That's good news too. But a resurrection is a transformation. You got to be transformed in this life yes. to understand what God is saying about the next. So he speaks their language, pulls us an illustration right out of the Pentateuch. And I can see Jesus, no matter who he's dealing with, he kind of assesses the situation and addresses it appropriately. And when the Sadducee comes, and by the way, this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that Sadducees show up. They, you see them in the other Gospels, but this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark a Sadducee shows up. So Jesus believes in a resurrection. That's why he's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of going to the cross. 
He's not afraid of what they're going to do to him. He tells people what's going to happen. He knows. It's not, a, it's not a surprise to him. He knows, and he's not afraid of it because he believes in the resurrection. Those early Christians that were burned at the stake, thrown to the lions, why in the world wouldn't they just change their story? It was because they believed in a resurrection. The only way you and I can go through some of the hell we have to go through down here is because we believe in a resurrection. No matter how bad it gets down here, no matter what happens to me down here, there's a resurrection. So we put our hope in that in the future. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am right now. What is that significance of that? If he's the God of the living then what about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They must have risen. Otherwise, he wouldn't be their God. He he would have been a God past tense. But he says, right now, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he wants to be our God. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 16, 16. I guess it wasn't Jesus. It was Simon Peter. Simon Peter answers, and he says, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. That's what I believe. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you believe that today? Because if you don't believe that today, what do you believe? We believe the parts we like and not believe the parts we don't like. We have to take the whole word in balance. We have to take the whole thing, and then we understand the truth. And He is the God of the living. So you've got to come alive. You've got to be raised up. You've got to find this new life in Christ. You and I do. And we have to hang on to it because the devil wants to take it away. New life. New life. I need that new life. At my age, I really need that new life. Because us, us old geezers, we know what it was like to have an encounter with God. But the young generation doesn't know that. So we try to take the way it was done back then, and we want to put it on people and say, well, we would have revival if we would just do these things. No, we wouldn't. Revival is the Spirit of God. We've got to discover what new thing God is doing with this new generation. In the 2020s, God's doing a new thing, and it's not even going to resemble the way it was when I came to Christ. We've got to embrace that and move into the future. Martin Luther King wasn't the only one that had a dream. Martin Luther had a dream. Martin Luther's dream, he was sitting in his living room, and he saw someone walking up the walk up to his house. And he, he, he somehow knew this was Jesus coming to his house for a visit. He knew that in his dream. And so he jumped up and he looked around and his house was a mess. And he had clothes over here thrown around and he had trash over here laying on the table and things out of order over here. And he was kind of in a panic trying to straighten everything up. And he was in such a, 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 a fuss about getting things ordered. He just realized there's no way. I will ever get this cleaned up. And then the knock on the door came. So he walked over to the door and he opened it just a crack and peeked out. 
And it was Jesus. Jesus said, can I come in? He was overwhelmed with shame at the way his house was. And he backed up and he opened the door and he allowed Jesus to step into the room. And as soon as Jesus stepped in, he turned around and he noticed his house was in order. Everything got straightened up. It wasn't his responsibility to straighten it up. It was Jesus' responsibility to straighten it up. It was his job to open the door. If he would open the door, Jesus will come in and everything falls into place. Everything gets ordered. What a dream. I have a dream like that for us, for you, for me, that we'd open the door for Jesus and let him to come in. And when he comes in, everything falls into place. Everything that doesn't belong gets moved. Everything that needs to be put in the trash gets put in the trash. It's a whole new life when you come to Christ. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Embrace that. Let's stand together. Now, as I've said these things, my guess is, most probably, there's a few people here this morning that you're saying, uh, my house is a mess. I got things way out of line. I got things out of place that don't belong. I know they don't belong. They're, I know things aren't what pleases God. If Jesus was coming to knock at the door of my life, I'd be in a frantic running around trying to straighten things up. But you can't straighten it up. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. So I want to give you an opportunity. I'm just going to give you a minute. I'm not going to pull on emotions. I'm going to let you make a decision between you and Christ. If you'd like to have your life in order, if you'd like to have this resurrected life working inside of you, if you'd like to have the, the living God connecting with you as your life, if you'd like to accept Christ, I'm going to ask you to come down to this altar. I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. Maybe you need new life. Maybe that's it. Maybe the life you once felt is dried up. Now you want to experience it. Just come to this altar. I want to pray for you. New things are going to happen to you. It's a new beginning if you come to Christ. We've got a couple people up here. Anyone else want to come up? This is your time. This is your occasion. The Holy Spirit's dealing with you. He's tugging on your heart. You feel that. Don't resist that. Don't be part of the resistance. God wants to do a good thing wants to do something new in your life. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women that have come to this altar. God, it's, it's the beginning of something new that you're doing. I just want to pray in the name of Jesus right now as they're opening their heart to you. God, they're opening their life to you. I pray that you'll do a new thing, a new thing. All of you here at the altar, say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father I believe in you. I believe you are the Father of Jesus. And I accept Jesus as my Savior. I ask your Spirit to come into my life and make me new. Help me breathe deep new life. I pray the power of God just would, would infuse me and help me to walk in a way that pleases you. Give me this new life, and I will live it for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God, God did a new thing. 
Maybe you don't feel it, but God did a new thing. He's doing a new thing right now. He's doing some renovation on the inside right now. He's walking in. You open the door, He's walking into your life. He's going to begin cleaning stuff up, and you, you don't have anything to do with cleaning it up. He's going to do it. Now, there's some responsibility you have to keep it clean. So we're making a commitment. Amen? Man, God is so good. Let's put our hands together and thank God for just being so good. Such an amazing God. We call this grace. Hard for man to understand because we have to buy everything we have. This is grace. You don't do anything for it. You just embrace it. You just receive it. And you say, thank you, Jesus. Amen? That's amazing grace. Amazing grace. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone in this room. You've done a new thing. You're doing a new thing in every one of us. Some of us just don't see it, but God, you're doing a new thing, something we did not plan for, something we never could have planned for. We just we ask you to go ahead and do it and surprise us with your amazing grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God's so good. We're going to have some prayer partners up here at the front to pray with you. If you have an issue you're going through, let somebody join with you. Go with God. He loves you.